News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. If you play any kind of an online game, then at some point you've probably played a game where you built a city, right? Maybe it was SimCity or whatever the case. There's so many of them out there. We love doing that in the virtual world. I love doing that. But are those cities that are virtual, are there things that we can learn from them in the real world? Are there real world applications for that technology? Well, turns out, yes, there is. So we're going to get somebody to explain that to us. That somebody is Anders Log, who's a director of Digital Twin Cities and a professor of computational mathematics at the Chalmers University of Technology. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. It's nice to be here. Well, tell me about this project. So I understand you're creating virtual cities that are what, twins of real cities? Yeah, we're creating something called Digital Twins, and this is a concept that is now being applied to the design of cities. It's been around for quite some time uh, in other areas, but now we're creating these Digital Twins, which are virtual models of um, uh, connected virtual models of cities where you can, uh, the aim is to sort of model the whole city, uh, everything that goes on in the city, having that appear in the virtual world so that we can test things, ask questions, do planning and design in the virtual world before we build it in, in the real world. Okay, so first of all, how do you create these digital twins? Like, do you do everything, buildings, traffic, roads? What about what's under the roads? Like, is everything there? Yeah, I mean, in, in the ideal sense, everything should be there. I mean, in the, I mean, pull this far enough, you have something which is a copy of the uh, virtual world, but uh, the physical world, I mean, but uh, in practice, you have to take this in steps. So you maybe decide to include a couple of features. Uh, something that's always there or mostly there is uh, a 3D model of the city and uh, that can be done in different levels of detail, either something very coarse or something very fine-grained and detailed. And then you decide for the purpose that you create your digital, what kind of data do you add? Maybe you add roads, maybe you add the buildings, maybe you add facades, windows, maybe you add what's underground. Maybe you add uh, what goes on in the air, like air quality, pollution, uh, wind flow, things like that. Maybe also add the citizens walking around in the city. And uh, well, it depends on what the purpose is. Okay. Uh, so the ideal digital twin, of course, has everything, but you, you make some choices. Right. Because you can't really do everything. Okay, but what it, why would a city want to do this? What is the purpose? Well, the purpose is, I mean, uh, in, in, as in anything, when you build something, I mean, if it's, uh, you do engineering, you build a car, you build an airplane, then you make a digital design and you test that in a virtual wind tunnel so that when the sort of plane leaves the factory, you're pretty sure it will fly. And uh, doing the same thing makes sense for cities. Like, well, you do the design, you test it in, in like a virtual sort of wind tunnel, and then when you build it, you're pretty sure that you've done the right choices because, I mean, a car has to sort of has a lifespan of, say, five years, but... A city or a city block maybe has a lifespan of hundreds of years. So it, it makes sense to do careful planning before you actually build it. Okay, it's so, very costly to rebuild. Right. So let me say you want to build a, a city. Somebody proposes, oh, I want to build a, mm. a tower here. So you can build that yeah. tower in the virtual city and then model and map how that would impact the neighborhood? Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. So, you, I mean, you can say what effects will this have on traffic patterns? What effect will it have on... on uh, pedestrian patterns, uh, where will they choose to walk, 
how will this raise the value of this city block, for example? What will be the effect on these traffic patterns on uh, air pollution? Maybe there's a kindergarten nearby. You don't want to do that. So, I mean, you, you, uh, I mean, things that you do in a city has, has a huge effect. So it makes sense to do careful planning and analysis before we actually build that is so fascinating to me because that's why people go to public hearings when they're, you know, afraid of a project being built. But this can actually show people yeah. what the impact is going to be. How many cities are doing this, Anders? I would say all major cities, uh, I mean, all major cities at least talk about building a digital twin. And then you can sort of be more or less sort of uh, uh, strict about what is actually, what, what criteria do you have to live up to to be a digital twin, but I, I would say uh, most cities uh, talk about building digital twins. And even in, in Sweden, where I work, we have uh, local municipalities uh, taking part in our research center. And all of them are in some stage of either having built something that they call a digital twin or are in the process of building it. So it's about, I mean, most cities, they have the data. It's there, uh, but it might be uh, stored in different systems. It might be outdated and so on. So it's uh, part of the work is combining existing data, processing that data and putting it together into something that, I mean, when you put it together, you get the digital twin. Right. How, how expensive is this? How t- and also how time consuming is it? How do you do this? Well, I mean, it's, uh, it's something can depend on how you do it. So this is actually a challenge when you build a digital twin to make this uh, sustainable because many, many, uh, Cities and many municipalities have gone wrong in this and done this as like a project. This is not a project that you do. You create your digital twin. It's like a process where you continuously collect data and you make sure that every data that you collect gets fed back into your digital twin. So this is something that you have to do. It's not a one-time thing. It's something that you, I mean, you, you choose to do this and this becomes the main tool for city planning. So it's, it's not something that you should think about what does it cost? You have to do it. And, and then because it becomes part of, of the, uh, the process for city planning. Right. It, but it's a huge rethink. In other words, you have to convert your whole system into thinking about yeah. your data this way. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you get so much money benefits and there's sort of really no, uh, I mean, alternative to doing this. I mean, you, you can't really keep uh, your, your data in, in, um, I mean, on paper, on 2D blueprints, you need to have a 3D model of your city and you need to connect that to all uh, existing systems. Are some, bit, are some cities just too big to tackle this at this point? Because you're right, it's a huge rethink. Would it be a huge project mm-hmm. for a, a major... We live in Vancouver. Is it too big to do yeah. for Vancouver? No, no, I mean, certainly not. I mean, uh, a, a famous example is, is uh, virtual Singapore. It's quite a major city and, and they've done this for their entire uh, city. Uh, so that's that's a major example of this, and uh, I think everyone is doing it. And it's not about scale. Of course, it's uh, I mean it costs more to do it for a large city, but you get this if you develop the technology, the systems, the scale itself. I mean you have to store more bytes, but that that's not the real problem. The, the problem is, is sort of the organizational problem uh, and the, like data ownership. Who owns the data, and what are the risks of sharing this data? How do you get access to the data? Right. And those questions, I guess, are somewhat the same depending, I mean, independent of the size of the city. Right, because I can understand the scope of this and how it would be useful, but then you wonder, well, who has mm-hmm. access to it, right? Does every person who has a question about, you know, working at the city, do they have access to it? Anybody who comes to the counter to ask a question, do they have access to it? 
Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's a very important question. And it's uh, certainly different levels of access that you have to have. And, uh, uh, for example, certain things are very sensitive. So we also talk about building digital twins for what goes on underground. And underground, you have very sensitive uh, infrastructure that you might not want to share, water systems and so on. And that data might not be publicly available or shouldn't be publicly available. So then you have to need to have uh, restricted access to certain parts of this data. Oh, so fascinating. Anders, thank you so much for being with us. Mm, thank you. That is Anders Log, who's a director of Digital Twin Cities and professor of computational mathematics at Chalmers University of Technology uh, over in Sweden, talking about this issue of creating digital twins. I've been hearing more and more about this. In fact, I think YVR has done this uh, for their facility, and you create an exact duplicate in the virtual world of your city with everything, right? Total mirror of the city, infrastructure, all the construction, all the traffic patterns, everything. And you can see it all right there in front of you. And you can model what it would look like. Say, hey, if I put a, a new skyscraper over here, what is that going to do? What's that going to take? What's that, how's that going to impact traffic? It is fascinating. And here you thought you were just playing a video game. Turns out, no, there's much more that you can do with that. This is Mornings with Simi. You've probably seen the commercials, maybe you've read a story about it, but we know that there is violence against healthcare workers and it is increasing, particularly in our hospitals. So how bad is the situation right now? Well, the provincial government has hired security guards, right, to have an increased presence at hospitals around the province, but will that solve the issue? What is going to help out here? So joining us now to talk more about this is Mina Broussard, who's the Secretary Business Manager for the Hospital Employees Union. Mina, thank you very much for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for being here to talk about this. This is an important story. Now, you are in the Surrey area there. How bad is the situation in Surrey hospitals? Well, Surrey is the fastest growing city dealing with a lack of mental health support, housing insecurity, and the poison a drug crisis, which all spill into the hospitals. And what we're seeing is a large number of code whites, and that's a serious flag that healthcare workers need additional support when dealing with violent uh, incidents. And all healthcare workers deserve a safe workplace, and all patients and public, uh, they should all feel safe when visiting our hospitals, and that's really not the case right now. Okay, and what is a code white? Maybe you could explain that to people. A code white is used in many healthcare facilities, especially our hospitals, to really alert staff that there's a real or perceived threat of violence, uh, which includes aggressive or responsive behavior. So it's pretty much all hands on deck that there could be a violent incident. And are we seeing more of those then? And what type of incidents are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about everything from verbal assault, from kicking, from biting, from punching, to, to physical assault. So it's a variety uh, of different types of uh, physical violence that we're seeing. Um, and we're seeing uh, from our, we're hearing from our members that uh, it is increasing, but we also believe that it's still very underreported because it appears that it happens on a daily occurrence and, and healthcare workers simply just aren't reporting every single incident. What about the increase in security? I thought that was supposed to help. Well, a lot of them aren't uh, on the ground yet, so they're still going through their training. But we really do support uh, the ministry's uh, recent plans to to hire 320 in-house protection service officers who are trained in trauma-informed practices. And that's really, really important. So they're going to receive training 
uh, for trauma-informed practice to acquire the necessary knowledge and skill and language uh, to apply a trauma-informed lens in the interactions with patients, uh, with families, with clients, and with colleagues. So I think it's a very important move. And we see these protection service officers already on Vancouver Island, and they really are uh, helping out uh, in de-escalating some of these uh, violent situations. Yeah, are these patients then, Mina, who come for treatment or perhaps just need more than what they can get at that moment in the hospital? It could be patients, but we have to realize that many people coming into our hospitals are having some of the worst days of their lives, and they may be dealing with trauma, with pain or loss, or with mental health challenges or addiction. So it could be patients uh, or their families. Right. Okay. And so are, do nurses, do healthcare workers get training to deal with these kinds of situations? They do get training. Uh, but again, with these protection service officers, um, there is going to be that additional training. And it's really significant that these uh, protection service officers will be integrated into the healthcare team as in-house employees. And that means that there will be a more cohesive approach to addressing potentially violent uh, situations with the current training that our healthcare workers do receive. And what are healthcare workers telling you? I mean, this must be really disheartening dealing with these situations. Well, it is. And we have to remember that healthcare workers have shouldered the weight of the pandemic for almost three years, and it's really taken a toll. And recently, um, in the last year, we we, um, polled our members and Three quarters have experienced like pandemic-related burnout, and one in three reports are not getting the adequate mental health supports in the workplace. So, we really need to ensure that workers who are struggling with the impact of work-related violence, with work-related trauma, and stress can access improved mental health supports not just today, but in the months and years ahead. Right, because this this security guard presence. Do you think that's the answer? Well, it's a start. But uh, there's uh, a lot of other things that we can do. We really need to deal with recruitment and retention to make sure that we have more healthcare workers on the ground. Uh, we just uh, concluded a round of negotiations with um, the healthcare employers and the provincial government, and we were able to, you know, negotiate some significant provisions. Uh, one is providing um, prevention uh, refresher training. Another is really important is to that our healthcare workers will have input on care planning for an aggressive patient or resident so we can prepare in advance to, to make sure that we have the adequate supports in place uh, for aggressive uh, patients or residents. Right. So this just sounds like ongoing. How can people help, though? Meaning, like when we hear the story and we see the ad campaigns, we see all about it. What can the public do? I think um, patients and uh, their families uh, visiting uh, acute uh, care facilities or long-term care or assisted living really just need to be mindful of the situation, the stress and struggles that healthcare workers are, are going through. And, uh, and then <laughs> write to your MLAs, write to the Minister of Health, and make sure that we have the adequate supports, the, the proper staffing levels, and make sure that workloads are manageable for all healthcare workers. All right, Mina, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Amy. Appreciate that. Mina Bersard is the Secretary Business Manager for the Hospital Employees Union. Uh, They are still having problems with violence against healthcare workers. Uh, The number of code whites has gone way up. So the TIE's been doing some good work on this and and they looked at some of the data here and they found that the Fraser Health Authority issued a record-breaking number of these code whites across their 14 facilities last year. And maybe more, there's more awareness about this, but as Mina points 
points out, there's probably also a lot more cases that don't even get reported. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, those overdose numbers for 2022 came out yesterday, and I've been thinking about them. Thinking about it because of the story that it tells us. And so much of the focus is on Vancouver when it comes to the opioid overdose crisis. I know a lot of people see this story or hear this story, and they just, they automatically think downtown east side, right? But look at those numbers. Like, really look at them. More people died in Fraser Health than in Vancouver Coastal Health last year because of overdoses. So while the focus does always seem to be on Vancouver, let's talk about Surrey and the problem that it has there too. Are people in need getting help? Is there enough focus on people who live outside of Vancouver getting the help they need to help combat this overdose crisis? What about the people who work in Surrey on this? Well, that's where our next guest comes in. Andy Batty is with us now, a certified drug and alcohol interventionist. And Andy, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thank you for having me. Now, I know you do a lot of work in the Surrey area. Like, what are you seeing right now? Is there enough, are there enough services for people who want to get help out there? Absolutely not. And then the major problem is there's no fast access to help in South Fraser area. What do you mean by fast access? So, hypothetically, if somebody was trying to go get treatment today, you're not going to be able to go to Substance Abuse Centre in Surrey or the Surrey Hospital and say, I want to get on methadone to quit opiates today. I want to get on morphine or acadian or suboxone and be able to get put on it the same day and not be sick the next morning. Do you think the issue in Surrey, and especially in Fraser Health in general, does it get enough attention? No, everybody focuses on the downtown east side. Years ago, people used to focus on the Surrey Strip. Now it's being cleaned up quite a bit, so nobody focuses on it anymore. Like a lot of my clients will phone and be like, I want to quit heroin right now, but the doctor's office is closed and, and Creekside Detox is closed. What do I do? And I'm like, well, the fastest way is to jump the Fraser River and go over to the Rapid Access Clinic in the U.S. or go to St. Paul's downtown to get emergency methadone or suboxone so you don't have to use. Because that one time that they might use, they might die. You don't know, right? The problem with, with opiates is it's a physical dependency. You absolutely get seriously sick, like you're about to die, and you think of suicide. So people that want to come off of drugs that are really, really sick that haven't had any opiates in their system for 24 to 48 hours because their parents have been watching them or their husband or wife want to quit, they can't quit. How are, how are you going to get the medication to help you? You can't. But you just had to, you said something so interesting just there about, you know, dealing with family members around somebody who is an addict. And a lot of times, and this is what the overdose crisis tells us, is that people are hiding it from their family members, right? Like family members might not even know the extent of this. No, a lot of people don't even know what drug their kids are on. Because most drug addicts lie. Let's be realistic. When I was a drug addict, I would lie. I've been clean for 16 years. And I wouldn't tell somebody I'm on opiates. I'd be like, oh, I just smoked a joint, right? Because you kind of look the same unless you do too much. Or they're like, oh, the doctor gave me some sleeping medications, right? You, you look in, in the Indo-Canadian culture, a lot of people don't know where to get help. There's major shame in getting help. And that's what Surrey is, a lot of Indo-Canadian people. And they don't know where to get the right access. So because I'm half Punjabi, half Canadian, my last name is Punjabi. Everybody calls me and was like, oh, Mr. Bhatti, where do I get help? I don't even speak Punjabi. I have three therapists that speak Punjabi and Hindi, and we explain to them where to get emergency help. And if you have money, you can get help the same day. 
boom. We'll come there, do the intervention, ship you to private treatment. You got a doctor, psychiatrist, psychologist, trauma therapist, 24-hour medical care in an hour. But if you don't, and most people don't, you can't get proper help. And that's what's sad. Can you give us an idea, though, of the types of people who that you come across that are dealing with these addictions here? Because I don't think it is the picture that people have in their mind, right? No, I work with professional athletes. I work with nurses. I work with pilots. I work with people that own big companies, real estate companies, labor people, longshoremen people. Lots of people with, with a lot of money have problems. It's not just the downtown east side. 90% of my clients have a lot of money and they have the access to fast treatment. The sad thing is I ship 35% of my clients out of country because we can get them the proper help they need with the proper language barrier. You, you can't just walk into a clinic and, and speak Punjabi and be like, yeah, I need to get detoxed. I need to do this. I need to do that. They don't have those options here. Right. But how do you even reach those people in terms of the message, right? About the toxicity of the drug supply is such a huge issue. And you touched on that there. How do you even reach people who don't want to admit their addiction to their loved ones that, hey, don't even do that because this is what's going to happen? Yeah, there has to be more education in every culture around what drugs are and how dangerous the drugs are and what they're compromised with. And if you are on those drugs, where can you get the help? Most people don't know where to get help. Most people think that these treatment programs you have in the Lower Mainland are treatment centers. They're not. There's not one licensed treatment center in the Lower Mainland that has 24-hour doctor, nurses, psychiatrists, psychologists, and drama therapists from Vancouver to Hope. All the proper licensed treatment centers are on the island, Bone Island, Powell River, Cranbrook. Those are the private treatment centers that if a doctor had to go to to get proper help, he's getting referred to. He's not getting referred to anything local they don't have the capabilities of helping them. So if somebody comes to you and they're not, you know, wealthy and they say, I need help, I can't do this anymore, what can you do for them? I'll tell them to go to Surrey Hospital and beg to see a doctor and say that they're suicidal so they can get fast access. And that's, I shouldn't have to tell them that, but that's what I have to do. And then I tell them to go to Quibble Creek or to Creekside Detox. Tell them you see, see an addictions doctor and you want to come off of opiates and otherwise you're going to harm yourself because that's what most of them do. And then they get put on methadone. Here's the problem. The doctor can only give them 30 mils of methadone. 30 mils of methadone is not enough to counteract the amount of fentanyl they're using. So they're still sick. So now they have to take the methadone and the fentanyl until the doctor can increase the methadone where it counteracts the amount of fentanyl you use. Now, the other problem is if you do cocaine, it's a stimulant. It's going to increase your high. So even if you are on a certain amount of methadone, it's going to make you too high well, you're going to need another opiate or benzo to put you back to sleep, or you're never going to sleep. And that's why everybody in Surrey and Vancouver and Langley and Burnaby think these people have schizophrenia. No, they've been up doing a stimulant all day, and now they can't go back to bed. And the problem with the overdose is people are like, I need to go back to bed now because I don't want my wife to see me. So they do an opiate and they die. Um, Andy, you just illustrated the problem for us um, so well. Thank you for joining us this morning, and hopefully we can have you back in the future to talk some more. Sounds good. You have yourself a wonderful day. Thank you for having me. That's Andy Buddy, who's a certified drug and alcohol interventionist in Surrey, talking about the problem that he sees in that community, something that doesn't get talked about often enough. This is Mornings with Simi. Families of the 45 individuals who have passed away in the last week alone from a toxic drug supply. 
to their friends and their colleagues and their communities and their loved ones, my heart goes out to you. And I'm so sorry that we're continuing to fail. That is Dr. Paxton Back. He's the co-medical director for the BC Centre on Substance Use. And he was speaking at the press conference yesterday, uh, talking about the number of toxic drug deaths that we have had in this province, that we continue to have in this province every single day. And you can tell there is a lot of frustration there because people are trying and they feel like we are not making a dent. Joining us now to talk more about this is Dr. Paxton Back. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Morning, Cindy. Thank you for having me. It must have been really difficult to get up there and talk about these numbers because no matter what we do, no matter how much we talk about it, the numbers just keep going higher, don't they? Yeah, it, it's devastating. It, it's so frustrating. It feels like we just keep coming back to the same place over and over again. And um, we're just not seeing the urgency uh, in the response that this crisis deserves. Okay, when you say we're not seeing the urgency, what do you mean? Like, where are we not seeing it? I'd say across the board. I mean, I, I think the numbers speak for themselves. Um, where we have not seen any change in the number of deaths this year compared to last year, um, so we can't call that anything other than other than a failure. Um, we're, we're we're failing when it comes to to providing um, timely access to treatment. We're failing when it comes to providing widespread access to harm reduction interventions, and we're failing when it comes to addressing upstream drivers and prevention of substance use and and the consequences of, 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 of a toxic drug supply. Yeah, can we talk about that a little bit more, the upstream uh, impacts that you're talking about? Like, how do we do that? I mean, it's, it's a great question, and, and it's not an easy one. But we talk a lot about, we talk, uh, your, your previous guest spoke very, very passionately about lack of access to treatment resources, which is really important. And, and certainly we talk a lot about harm reduction in this, in this province. But we also have to get down to some really challenging discussions around fundamental reasons why people use drugs. Um, and those are, 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 there are, there are many drivers there. But things like homelessness and poverty and mental health and trauma, chronic pain, mental health. These are all, these are all really important issues um, which don't get the amount of attention that they deserve and, and are very all too often contributing to somebody's substance use when they end up uh, seeing me in the emergency room at St. Paul's Hospital. Right. This is a conversation that I've been trying to have even this morning is about are we reaching the right people? right, with the message? Are we reaching the people who, maybe too many of them just think it doesn't apply to them, but you mentioned people dealing with chronic pain. Do we talk enough about that? Because I feel like that's a huge aspect of what we're dealing with here. I mean, absolutely. I really appreciate uh, your comments earlier around recognizing this as a provincial problem. Um, Certainly, when we see these overdose deaths, um, many people, their, their minds immediately go to the downtown east side, which is badly affected by the current scenario. But this is a provincial problem. There's no region of this province where people aren't dying at unbelievable rates. Um, 40 people will die in the city of Nanaimo this year. Um, when, you look at, when you look at per capita deaths, you see Northern Health, you see Interior Health, you see Vancouver Island, all very well represented there. So this is a provincial problem. When it comes to, to chronic pain, I think this is something that we really don't talk often enough about because it is so often a contributor to somebody's substance use. Um, up to 30% of people with a, with a diagnosed opioid use disorder identify as having chronic pain issues. And yet, in our province, if you want to access the medical system for treatment of chronic pain, it's an incredibly challenging thing to do. There are very few physicians who are doing this kind of work. There are very few clinics who see these patients. There are 
astronomical wait lists and many of the services that they would like to provide for the treatment of patients like physiotherapy are not covered for, for many individuals. So um, one of one of many upstream drivers of substance use, but certainly one that's not getting the attention that it deserves. I feel like that's a, a good starting point too, right? Because we're talking about people who might just have hurt themselves and things kind of spiral out of out of control from that point, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. There, there, you know, I hear every every type of story um, from patients in terms of how they started using substances and, and and why and what their trajectory has been like. But that is a very common one that it starts with an injury or 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 some sort of uh, a pain issue that's impairing their ability to to work or, or to to get quality of life, and and that's a, a, a all too common of a, of a tale. Right, and so then when we do hear them, as we heard from our, our last guest, is that we, we get people who are at the absolute throes of an emergency, right? They're kind of at the end of their a rope by the time they get to the hospital, aren't they? Yeah, that's certainly, we're certainly seeing them at a very different place in their journey at that point. I mean, I will point out that in the hospital, we see, we see people at, at every stage in that journey, it may be somebody's first time ever using substances, um, or they may have been, they may have, have a 20 or 30 year career or anything in the middle. We, we see all, all types. Um, but, but definitely that is a, a different, a different time in their, when I see them in the emergency room, it's a different time in their journey. And, and the discussion we're having then is, 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 is certainly different. Um, and so often I wish that we could have been there to intervene you know, 20 years ago when, um, when, when, when things were starting to, when the issue was starting to get going. Well, what do you hope people take away from this, Dr. Back? And listening to that press conference yesterday and kind of reading and seeing some of these headlines, what do you hope people take from all of this? I, I spoke yesterday about, about the sense of shock and outrage that I think we should all feel when we look at these numbers. When we look at the fact that over 2,000 of our, of, our, of our fellow British Columbians died last, month, last year, that six of them are dying per day, that we should all feel outrage when we see those numbers. And, and we should, I, I, I'm pleading that people channel that outrage. So call your MLA, call your MP. This needs to be a topic of conversation every day in order to, in order to push that, that level of urgency that we need in our response, because we need, we need, more. We need more as far as a, as, as a response from communities, from the provincial government, from the federal government. We need to see more investment in the harm reduction. We need to see an overhaul of our treatment system. And we need to see meaningful contributions and meaningful discussion around, around these upstream drivers and, and, and prevention as a whole. So I, I hope, if nothing else, that, 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 that people feel outrage and urgency and, call and may, start making those phone calls. Do you think people need to recognize themselves as well? Like, that's the thing, is reaching people who don't think they are the problem, but they actually are. So there, there are very few people in this province who haven't been touched by this crisis. Um, we don't talk about that, but there are very few people in the province who don't know somebody or know somebody who knows somebody who's died from a toxic drug supply. Never mind all of the people who, who, who don't pass away but experience innumerable other complications from an unpredictable drug supply. So this is touching us all, whether we like to talk about it or not. And and it's very important that we admit that and we we put that out there and we use that to channel that, 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 that outrage, that urgency that, that we should all be feeling when we, when we sit down and see that 
45 people in our province died in the past week and 45 will die in the next week if we don't do something. Dr. Bach, thank you for talking to us about it this morning. Thanks for having me. We appreciate that discussion. Dr. Paxton Bach is the co-medical director for the BC Centre on Substance Use. Yes, we're talking about those toxic drug deaths. Trying to figure out, you know, as Dr. Bach was saying, like, where is the disconnect? Where is the outrage? Do just people, do you automatically hear about this and think, oh, it's a Vancouver problem, it's a downtown east side problem, not thinking that maybe it's a family member's problem or a neighbor's problem in every neighbourhood of BC. Every community is seeing this happen. How, how can we not notice? How can we not you know, talk about that? This is Mornings with Simi. And the history of Vancouver in our region is comprised of many different people and many different cultures who all came together. Some of the stories we know and some we still don't know enough about, like the history of Black Canadians. Their stories are pretty much missing because they haven't really been properly collected and curated until now. Dr. Annette Henry is with us, a professor of literature and literacy at the University of British Columbia and the Institute on Gender, Race, Sexuality and Social Justice. Dr. Henry, thank you for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. And and happy Black History Month. Yeah. Well, tell us about the project that you're working on. Well, the project I'm working on is uh, slow, but uh, also very exciting because as you just uh, introduced, you know, um, our libraries are full of, um, of, of, of uh, certain people and not others. And so my work is, is trying to insert those lives that have been missing. And, and um, so I've been interviewing um, over the last couple of years uh, uh, black people in Vancouver from a range of backgrounds, from educators to um, judges to, um, um, you know, social workers, um, and and I could go on. And the project really started, I have to give credit, actually, to someone called Nalda Callender, who uh, about 15 years ago had done uh, commissioned some interviews through another community member, Shelley Vidal, um, and, and those interviews actually sat on the shelf. And, uh, and so I, you know, I, I spoke with Nelda and asked her, you know, this is just black history sitting on the shelf. Let's do something about it. And my idea was to re-interview those same people 15 years later and see how their views have changed. And uh, so I started by doing that. Uh, and then I started, and then I began to sort of broaden what I'm doing in terms of trying to find a whole range of people that would represent people in British Columbia. Oh, Dr. Henry, um, I wonder, is it hard to mm-hmm. find these stories because they haven't really been collected until now? And have, have they been forgotten? Like, how do you dig for these stories? Well, uh, you know, it's very interesting uh, um, actually, um, I have to confess that I was listening to another station this morning. <laughs> and uh, on, on that station, um, the, the woman being interviewed, a black woman being interviewed, said, you know, we're a close community. So you start there. So you start with uh, people you know. Uh, but, but remember, I also had a collection of about 40-plus interviews to be, to to start with, but, but that, your question is an excellent one because um, I, I received a list of phone numbers and addresses and most of them were wrong. Uh, 
So I did have to do, I, I spent a year doing a lot of digging or correcting of those addresses. Uh, and again, that's through the community because nothing is in the archives. Right. Well, so, what is so the history though, Dr. Time. Henry? Like, what are we missing? What kind of stories are you hearing? Well, I think we're missing, uh, you know, history is, is, is told from the point of view of, quote-unquote, the elite, of, 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 you know, white people, we can say. So we're missing the stories of people who've made contributions in this city and in this area who uh, are not white. And so, for example, even um, uh, a friend of ours, was a friend of mine, was, was giving me a tour of... Um, where they live uh, out in uh, um, South, uh, 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 it's really Twasson area. I mean, we went for a long, long drive, and, and he was telling me, oh, this is Dee's Lake. And I said, Dee's Lake? You mean, you mean Dee's Lake as in Dee's, the black, um, uh, the, about the, the, the black man who, who um, had the salmon cannery? And he looked at me like puzzled, and I had never heard of that. And I said, "Oh yes, you, you know, you know, the Dee's Tunnel is named after black man, and of course now it's 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 another tunnel, right? What's, what's that tunnel? You know." So anyway, so all of these things that the history gets erased and people don't know. I visited the North Vancouver Archives, <clears throat> and one of my students was visiting the Black um, the Vancouver Archives. We were trying to look up certain people who have made contributions to this area, and we couldn't find them in the archives. So, um, you know, that's the kind of thing that... Um, that is missing. That's right. the kind of thing. So we do know, for example... we. We do know, and, and when we think about black history, we, we think about, you know, Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, and we forget about Rosemary Brown, or we forget about Emily Barnes, or we forget about some of our local people right here who have made contributions. So there's, there's that aspect. And then there's also the aspect of, you know, I, I know that at, this is a time that we celebrate black achievements, but we also... Um, forget about the everyday. So I'm interested in how people live out their everyday lives in a place that is not Toronto, that is not Montreal, right. that is not Chicago, and so on and so forth. Now, are people very excited to tell those stories because oh, they yes. think, oh, you know what, yes, we haven't yes, been yes, asked yes. before, and thank goodness somebody is asking. Yes, yes. Some, um, some are. Um, uh, most are. Uh, most are. Um, one of the things I found with some of the older women is, and this is this is in, this is in the research literature as well. Very often, women feel they don't have, like you, you ask them to 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 be part of the study, and they say, "Oh well, what do I have to contribute? I don't have anything to say." And then they start telling these amazing things. So, so they're not sort of popping out their chests and saying, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah I have a lot to say." Right. You know, they, they, they're very. Um, a, a lot of people just think, well, I'm living my life. I'm doing what I think needs to be done. I saw there was a need here, so I did it. You know, so I, so I, so I, um, you know, I thought there was a need here. So I, I started this program or so I, you know, so I started this newspaper. There wasn't one, so I started it, you know. And so just, they think it's like an everyday thing. But those, those are the things that when we look back, we will say, oh, yes, well, you know, Michelle Lee Williams, she started this, the Afro News 
or um, you know, the Junior Achievement Awards were started by these people because they saw the black children needed a place to congregate and feel good about themselves and have, you know, uh, contests and fashion shows and so on and so forth back in, you know, back in the right. 80s and 90s. Let mm-hmm. me ask you, where can people access this? Like when this project's all done, where yeah. can the rest of us see it or okay. hear it? Yes. Well, it will be online, very a- accessible online. That's my, that's my goal is to create a digital archive. Um, a Black Oil History Digital Archive. So that won't be live until for, for about a year. I mean, I'm just talking with web developers now, and, and we're just figuring out how we're going to lay right. this all out. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. fascinating. Dr. Henry, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That's Have doc- a great day. You too. That's Dr. Annette Henry, a professor of literature and literacy at the University of British Columbia and the Institute of Gender, Race, Sexuality and Social Justice, talking about curating and cataloging these stories about the contribution of Black Canadians in our community. And, and for instance, Dr. Henry Dare just mentioned uh, Dees Island. So she was talking about the Dees Tunnel, which is another name for the Massey Tunnel. Uh, you know, the Dees Slough, you've heard that before, right? There's Dees Island Park. People may have gone there and you Maybe you've never wondered who that was named after. Well, it's named after a man named John Sullivan Dees. He was a black tinsmith, actually helped found the salmon canning industry along the Fraser River. Uh, He was actually born in South Carolina and migrate over the years, like, you know, migrated to California and then up the coast to to our area, was in Victoria and then over here uh, and helped do that. And then eventually sold the cannery and moved to Portland, Oregon, but not before his cannery had really established the salmon canning business right here uh, on the South Coast. So yeah, little bits of history like that that we don't hear enough about, right? This is Mornings with Simi. 